Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Church, we are like children, doing ourselves harm without alarm, exposing ourselves to dangers seen and unseen that seem appealing, yet in his love he forgives the ignorant, oblivious of their oblivion, sin against him the all-knowing, the omniscient, sufficient in his grace for he judges justly and chooses not to hold our ignorance against us, no. He shows his holiness to be greater than our greenness. He flips our immaturity into victory instead, spreading his somersault over the hellish ice we tread so that we're not left dead before we've lived long enough to know that the Father forgives. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke emphasizes Jesus' prayer life in a way that the other evangelists do not. Only in Luke do we learn that Jesus was praying when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Only in Luke do we learn that Jesus prayed all night long before he chose his 12 disciples. And only in Luke do we get a glimpse into Jesus' prayer life that Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. God prayed because as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son took on a new nature and became man. 100% God, 100% man. The only begotten son of God, begotten of the father from before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, in one essence with the Father through whom all things were made, in Jesus God became man. And in his humanity, he laid aside all of his divine prerogatives and willingly took on our weaknesses. He was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was tired. His body knew weakness, even as your body does. He was, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, tempted in every way like we are, and yet without sin. And as Jesus faced the ultimate moment of truth, the ultimate moment of truth, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When God prays, his love triumphs over his comfort. And so he moves forward to the horrors of the crucifixion and the mysteries of the divine abandonment. In this verse, we come to the final prayer of Jesus in his pre-resurrection flesh. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This prayer is for his countrymen who just one week before were calling him the king and messiah and now we're saying, crucify him, crucify him. The prayer is for the Roman soldiers who had mocked him, brutally beaten him, and put him on that rugged cross. This prayer is for you, for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. Jesus' body writhed in agony with the skin stripped off of his back from the expert lashing of the Roman Whip embedded as it was with small bones and pebbles specifically designed to tear away the flesh from the body. For each breath he took on that cross, he pushed up his body in order that he could breathe. And as he did so, a thousand slivers of wood sank deeper into the oozing skinless flesh of his back as a divine punishment for humanity's sin that was piled on him, he had to say only one word and the agony would end. Every enemy would receive his just punishment and he could return to the Father in perfect glory. But when God prays, love, his love triumphs over his comfort. And so his prayer for the Jew, for the Roman, for you and for me, changes the eternal destiny for everyone who will call on his name. God's final word in prayer is his most 
reckless. As his lips formed the words, Father, forgive me. Jesus knows the awful truth of that prayer. He knows that sin must be punished and punished in full. He knows that sin, that God's justice demands that every sin, every evil deed, every selfish thought and deed must receive its rightful penalty. Father, forgive them. Is Jesus saying, Father, punish me. Punish me with the fullness of your wrath for every sin ever committed. Punish me in such a way that all the physical pain of this cross cannot compare with the agony of your divine wrath. Father, forgive them. Punish me. A God who prays. Yes. The God-man who prays for you and meets your greatest need. And this last word, this last prayer, is the prayer for your deepest need. God's last word, forgiven. Righteously and justly hanging in a criminal's place. If we received the full extent of his wrath, maimed and burning in flames would be a sentence rightfully gained. But Jesus, perfect and innocent, willingly stepped in, taking our place. We were full speed ahead on the highway to hell, a criminal's fate, but we crashed head first into a barricade of mercy and grace. And with bloody eyes, body limp, bruised, beaten and bare, he turned to this sinner whom he foreknew would call out his name. And through the pain of his death, he mercifully said, you, evil, broken, rejected, dejected, misused, depraved and displaced, truly, with me, you'll be in paradise today. Truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. It was 1997 when Tupac posed the question, I wonder if heaven's got a ghetto. Many since then have dismissed that question as an excuse to live in folly. But to do so dismisses the societal context in which this question is posed. Tupac shows a society so evil where many have a lot and a lot have a little. And he shows people trapped in an endless cycle of poverty under a severe system of racism and a society where hunger pains makes a person live by any means necessary. Amen. It was the great poet Jay-Z who says, the poverty line, we're not above. So out comes the mask and gloves, cause we ain't feeling the love. We ain't doing crime for the sake of doing crime. We're moving dimes, cause we ain't doing fine. No one wakes up in the morning, says that my life goal is to be a criminal. And yet we turn to our text and we see two hanging beside our Lord. Products of a society not much different from ours. William Herzog would explain that the unemployment rate would be so high because the rich had a whole bunch. The rich would take over the land, leaving so many poor people that folk had no place to work, and there were more poor folk than there were jobs. And these two criminals more than likely have lived a life where they have been chosen to choose crime just to be able to put food to their mouth, just to be able to earn half of a denarii of a day's earning to be able to live. Here they hang, both products of the system that bred them, but also products of their own decision. And as both hang on the cross, both are tried, both are found guilty, both are about to die, both are about to meet their maker. Matthew and Mark tells us that both at one point mocked Jesus. Both said, you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself? Hopelessness and oppression can lead to cynicism. As they point the finger and say, you made this mess, why don't you come up off of here and save us too? But Luke shows us something that Matthew and Mark don't allude to. Luke shows us 
that one apparently has a change of heart. One looks over at this Jesus and sees that this man had never done anything wrong and that he is suffering a criminal's death and he had never done anything to deserve it. This one says, it's not the time to judge him and to throw him and to even label him like us. He has done nothing. We are getting what we deserve. Don't you fear God, the one says, since we are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we've done. This man has done nothing. He recognizes his sinfulness. I want to pause for a second and say that there comes a time where you got to see yourself as God sees you. That you got to understand that you are full of mess. You are full of dirt. Society has its ills. It has its issues. But you got yours too. And this man says, I have done my dirt. And I'm hanging here dying justly as a criminal, just like I deserve it. But his next statement is telling. He looks at Jesus and says, please... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This con man, this malefactor understood that his life of conning wasn't enough to get him in the gates. That his life of crime wasn't enough to pay his way in. That there was nothing he could say to get him a spot at the Lord's table. He knew that he hadn't been to no man's church. He knew that he hadn't paid to no, no attention to no one's Bible. He said, there is no place for me here, but I need someone that can vouch for me. And he looks at the master and says, please remember me in paradise. Essentially, what he's asking is, is there a heaven, a ghetto in heaven? Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Can't you hear the liberating words there? This man knew that he had not a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. This man knew that he had no righteousness to call his own, but yet the righteous one says, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's why, because when God has the last word, heaven doesn't have to create a ghetto. Heaven comes down to the ghetto. It was our Lord where the fullness of God was made to dwell full bodily. It was our Lord who hung on the side of two criminals. It was our Lord who took our sin on his back. It was our Lord who innocently hung there like a guilty man. And anyone who calls on him will see him in paradise. Because when God has the last word, heaven comes to the ghetto. Mother, we were destined before time began. Our lives intertwined in scripture, you were created, carefully crafted in his hands. Your character bore the marks of his fingers. You, given a divine assignment to birth a king, whose reign would rain holy fire from heaven, flooding hearts and minds with waves of glory, consuming sin with miracles, signs, and wonders, leading to repentance to usher an eternal kingdom. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Yeah, when I was assigned this text, I was thinking, how are you going to pick the, the white boy from the whacked out, messed up family to take the most sentimental last word of Jesus? Then I found out today it was Pastor Doug that gave it to me. Thank you. And it's, it's a difficult, it's difficult for me because my childhood looked less like a precious moments figurine set and, and, and more like one of those after school specials. Uh, back, back, 80s kids will get this, but, but back in the day, uh, they would have these sitcoms and when they would do mature themes on drugs and teen pregnancy, they'd always say, this is a very special episode of Family Matters. This is a very special episode of Blossom. Listen tonight, church. Tonight, it's a very special episode of the third word. Beyond the sentimentality is a massive question. Where in the world is Jesus' brothers? 
Cute words cannot be divorced from this situation. Church, it's still Friday night. Sunday hasn't come yet. Listen to him if you can. Listen to him as he lifts himself up on his nail-driven feet to grab a breath. And as he groans and grunts out, woman, behold your son. As he looks down to his disciple and says, son, here's your mother. Can you hear him? Can you look him? Can you look in his eyes? Can you even see his eyes? Or is the blood coming down from the brow of his head? covering his eyes. Jesus died a miserable, painful, humiliating death, and his brothers were not with him. Some of us have been abandoned, but praise God, some of us have been adopted by family in the church. You know, when we were about to do something really stupid, somebody took us for a ride. When we were, when we were all alone, somebody came and they brought us food. But I want to tell you tonight that when you get to that place of pain, when you get to that dark alley of abandonment, when you are alone, you are not in that alley of abandonment alone. You're there with Jesus. Jesus was hanging on the cross in his very last minutes of life, and his family rejected him. He was alone and abandoned. And when we suffer, we suffer with the Lord. See, we know how to preach to the sinner. We know how to preach. I think we do a good job talking about sin and grace. And, 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 and we do a good job preaching to the saint and, to, and just giving you a vision of what life ought to be like. But we need to do a better job of preaching to the sufferer, to one who's suffering. He hung on the cross not only to forgive all of your offenses, but to heal you from all the things you were offended against, to heal you from all your wounds. I was a professor in Rwanda for four years, and we had pastors come in, wife beating, ancestor praying, undiscipled and unpastored pastors. And the greatest moments were on, at graduation where the wives would stand up and they'd say, my husband used to beat me. My husband used to never go in the fields and help us. My husband used to be this way, but now he loves us. Now he takes care of us. He's at home. He's praying with us. He told us the true gospel. And not only that, the church is growing. When God has the last word, it is a perfect, permanent, and powerful word. Just like when God said in the beginning of the Bible, let there be light. When God tells the disciple, this is your mother, it's perfect, it's permanent, and it's powerful. Won't you believe this? If the dying Lord who's suffering on the cross can look at someone and think about their needs, can you believe tonight that the risen Lord can look at you in whatever loneliness you're in? Can look at you and say... I will provide for you. Maybe you need to look down the pew somewhere. Maybe you look at the person next to you in the seat. And you need to hear the words of the risen Lord saying this to you. Behold your brother. Behold your sister. Behold your mother. Behold your father. What gets me is the math. It's three o'clock and I count 36. That's 36 times I've sinned already. That's 2.7 times per hour times 24 hours times 365 times the 31 years that I've been living. 733,212 sins at three o'clock on a good day. There are 7.5 billion people on this earth how can all those sins be atoned by one man with no dirt and one cross with three nails and nine words that he yelled as he hung till dusk? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The simple answer is for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now the ninth hour, and darkness is all over the land. And for the first time in all of eternity, the King, the Messiah, Lord Yeshua, Jesus Christ is experiencing separation from his Father. Now, we know that this is the first time that he's ever experienced any type of divine disconnection from his Father. Because remember when he stood at Lazarus' tomb and he prayed, he said, I know that you always hear me. Highlighting the word always, which suggests to us tonight that Jesus and the Father never had an interruption in their communication until the Son decided to take on the sins of his people. I don't know about you guys, but I hate being ignored. My wife sometimes, when, when I foolishly do something in our marriage, she'll give me what's known as the silent treatment. Has anybody ever experienced the silent treatment? Y'all looking at me funny, I saw some of y'all come in not holding hands, you're probably experiencing the silent treatment. It is almost as though the father is giving the son the silent treatment, but not because the son did anything wrong. He is giving him the silent treatment because of our own dysfunction. But even though the father was silent to the son, the son was not silent to the father. He lifts up his voice and says, my God, my God, suggesting to us that Jesus is praying. And in the time of anguish, in the time of bearing the full weight of the wrath of God, Jesus chose to do two things. First, he chose to pray. Secondly, he chose to lean on the scriptures. How do I know? Because he's literally quoting Psalm 22, verse number one right now. And in the midst of dealing with hardship, that is what Jesus does. It's amazing that in the midst of bearing the full weight of the wrath of God, Jesus chose to pray and Jesus chose to lean on scripture. Yet when we're in the midst of hardship, we choose to complain. We choose to post on Facebook. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus prays and he leans on the scriptures. Let us not just marvel at the fact that Jesus is praying and leaning on the scripture. Let us look at the content of his prayer. And the content of his prayer is presented to us tonight in the form of a question. Why have you forsaken me? It is interesting because Jesus, out of all people, should be acquainted with abandonment. Up until this point, Peter has already denied him. Up until this point, Judas has already betrayed him. If you flip back to Matthew 26, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it tells us that the disciples deserted him. Yet I am, I, am un, I am unbelievably amazed that on the cross, Jesus does not say, my God, my God, why did Judas betray me? Jesus doesn't have any concern for why Peter denied him. He doesn't even care why the disciples deserted him. But when he felt the absence of his father, he cried out, Elah, Elah, lama sabachthani, which literally means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up until this point, the nails have been driven in his hands. The nails have been driven into his feet. The crown of thorns has been crushed into his head. He is literally being beaten to the point, almost 20 hours to the point where you can't even recognize him. Yet I am perplexed when I read the scriptures that Jesus does not mention his physical condition. But the only thing he's concerned about is the absence of his father, which suggests to me tonight that the worst part of the wrath of God for Jesus was not physical. The worst part of the wrath of God was being separated from his father. I don't know if there's anybody in here that hasn't trusted Jesus, but can I propose to you tonight? First of all, we're glad that you're here, but can I tell you tonight that the worst part of the wrath of God is not the gnashing of teeth. Worst part of the wrath of God is not the unquenchable fire. The worst part of the wrath of God for non-believers is being separated from God for eternity. So Jesus asked this question, why? Have you forsaken me? And with my last few minutes, I love to at least attempt to answer the question. Simply put, he was forsaken because of our sin. Paul put his pen to the paper in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus took your sin. Jesus was forsaken for my sin. Jesus was forsaken because of that drug addiction. Jesus was forsaken because of what went down at the creep spot. Let's not act like we don't remember the creep spot. Jesus was forsaken because he knew that all of us in this room was toe up from the flow up. Jesus was forsaken because he knew that we could not get it together. Simply put, Jesus 
was forsaken so that you and I would never be. Emmanuel, a king, seated at the mercies of man, having all authority to order the waves to bathe him and the currents to caress his collapsing feet, unhinged his tongue from the chasm of his jaw as he wrestled with gravity to cry out, I thirst. The brim of a bitter bowl kissed by the lips of a servant, set out to satisfy a thirst mankind was too unworthy to quench. I thirst. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. So our first three statements, as we, as we look at the seven, the first one was on his enemies, the second one was on the thief, the third was on John and Mary. Smack dead in the middle of the seven is number four. Number four is the gospel presented, because the gospel is Jesus forsaken, that you and I would be taken in to know Jesus. And then what follows now comes the bodily beaten and scripture fulfilling reality of the cross. And smack dab in the middle is that gospel that punches in the face. But right after that, of these three bodily realities, of these three scriptural fulfillments, he says, I thirst. You know, I don't know if you know, but in the beginning was the word and the word was God and he made all things and all things were made by him. There was not anything made that was made. He made the he made the thing oxygen. He made hydrogen. He could put two together, but the one who made hydrogen and oxygen thirsts. The one that was in the beginning with God who could do anything who had control of the water to make it dance if he wanted? Thirst. The physical thirst quencher, the spiritual thirst quencher, makes a statement stating he's thirsty. It's the shortest of these statements. And in Greek, um, the original text, it's really just one word. I thirst. Five little letters. Is it dehydration? from the near eastern scorching sun or the reality of the disconnection from the father? Is it this exhaustion from the multiple beatings and the hair being pulled from his beard or is it the reality that he is doing the work of expiation of man's sin? Was he feeling the exhaustion of the mission or was he feeling the ultimate execution being applied by the father? So Jesus is a sympathetic savior, knowing all things was completed. He's dying in pain with a human reality. See, we often forget that Jesus was a man. We talk about the hypostatic union, but we're, we're all hypo, no static. He was in pain, hurt and bleeding. He was bleeding human blood. He was feeling human pain, real suffering. We take suffering part out of the gospel. We make Jesus like, like, like Luke Cage. We act like he can't take pain. But Jesus stepped into the world fully embracing his humanity. He is the last Adam. He and he recognized in this, he steps in and he declares, I thirst. Can I tell you what started at a tree? in the garden is ending at a tree on Golgotha's hill. The tree he created, he's hanging on. He suffered a gruesome death. This was be similar to our torture of, 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 of POWs. It would be like waterboarding. But in this word, it's all bored and no water. The thirst was a part of the torture that they would torture. He's a sympathetic savior. Jesus is a servant of the scriptures that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus walks in the word fulfilling scripture perfectly and painfully that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is not some cosmic manipulation, D.A. Carson says. No, this is, I, I want you to get that this is the sovereign Lord orchestrating substitutionary atonement on behalf of fallen man. This is not some hookup, some reactionary moment where God says, uh-oh. 
but this is the divine orchestration of the sovereign Lord, the work of the sovereign Lord, the place of his birth, Micah 5, 2, divine Lord, the time of his birth, Daniel 9, 29, 925 Genesis 49:10 the manner of his birth Isaiah 7:14 and the manner of his death this wasn't play acting this was not a broadway play this was a divine conductor the cosmic maestro of the universe working out the plan that was always in place he created the sun he created the sinner and he created the soldier that would stab him in his side the struggle the strife and the strain can I tell you that this sacrifice was pre-ordered by the Lord? It was a customized, pre-ordered. Y'all watch HTTV? It was customized, pre-ordered, knowing there would need of a renovation. The God-man is dying on the tree he created, being killed by a man that he allowed to be born. The divine orchestration of redemption is being fleshed out. That the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 69, 20 and 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there's none. <clears throat> and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine and drink. I'm broken by their taunts, flat on my face, reduced to nothing. I looked in vain for one friendly face, not one. I couldn't find one shoulder to cry on. That's from the message. In the midst of his thirst, there will be no one coming with Gatorade. They, he would find no one to offer him a bottle of water or even a sip. Recognizing the completion of his mission, he's fully committed to suffering the reality of the cross and the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Earlier, he said this, Father, would you have this cup to pass? Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Jesus' cry of thirst is him submitting himself to the final humiliation of indignity as human. This cup would not pass. Jesus was fully absorbed in his identity as the suffering servant. Jesus is the sufficient savior. See, normally you need drink to satisfy thirst, but Jesus' thirst would be the thing to satisfy our wrath that we deserve. <laughs> Payment for the sins of mankind is coming into fulfillment in this moment. People are in hell today saying, I thirst. Hell is a place of eternal thirst. Those who are condemned to suffer there for eternity will forever thirst, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. There is no thirst in heaven, though, because Revelate, John the Revelator told me, there shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. <laughs> he invites all who thirst to come and take the water of life with no payment. The wine offered was considered some bad wine, it would be like Boone's Farm or Thunderbird. <laughs> Jesus submits to drinking some bad wine that he would ever drink the good wine of the kingdom. So can I tell you this? Jesus drinks the bitter wine, the Boone's Farm, so that you and I can drink the sweet good wine, the 2,000-year-old aged wine, the one that is going to take a little while to pop the cork, the one he said he won't drink again for 2,000 years till he drinks it new with us. I'm waiting for that day. I'm going to click my glass in the kingdom. And I'm a Moses is going to click his. Elijah's going to click his. And we're going to toast to the king that we would drink it new with him. Because we will no longer be ever thirsty. I thirst. He underwent the torture, submitted to the beating, his body pierced, torn, abused, and slowly receding. The darkest day of mankind, creation tormenting its creator, the violence of human hands producing the death of an innocent martyr. 
Our faith hinges in his crucifixion, Christ's intentional undertaking. His actions please us. They save us, build us, redeem us, allowing a holy God to one day be with us. He is the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the hero, the Lamb of God, Emmanuel. John 19:30, he said it is finished, and because of him, we have a story to tell. It is finished. After three years of healing the sick, teaching the masses, feeding the hungry, and standing in solidarity with the oppressed, Jesus Christ finally meets his fate, and as the creed says, he descended into hell. An enemy of the state, a subverter of the system, a religious radical, insurgent, dissenter, anarchist, heretic. After a night of secret hearings and illegal proceedings, he's brought before a corrupt court and a crooked judge. He claims to be king, guilty as charged, sentenced to execution by crucifixion. The lynch mob is moving in. He will be devoured by injustice. But his day has just begun. Jesus the Christ still has a long, long way to go. He's stripped naked and ripped to shreds by torture whips but he is not finished. He carries his own electric chair to its power source, but he's not finished. He, he lets his loved ones penetrate his sacred brow with the very thorns that represent their rebellion, but he is not finished. He, he sits in submission as giant nails are hammered into the only hands that have never caused pain. He's not finished. Hanging, struggling for breath. Vultures are circling the soon-to-be corpse, waiting for the cue from his halted heart before they can finally feast on his finished flesh. He's not quite finished. He gets his affairs in order. John's going to take care of mom. The groaning earth erupts, as daylight disappears, an invitation for the dead to wake up and walk. Then, in his time, and by his choice, Jesus tells the very ones who thought they had the power that now, and only now, it is finished. As he dies, he quite literally has the last word. A king who says his kingdom is finally here is killed by the very kingdom that was already there. Sounds like this king's tale was cut kind of short. If this were an ordinary king or an ordinary kingdom, it is finished would be a cry of defeat. But as I know, and I hope you know, this king is anything but ordinary. Because crucifixion did not cancel or did not even delay his kingdom. But crucifixion demonstrated for us exactly what kind of king we were dealing with and exactly what kind of kingdom this would be. So when Jesus says it is finished, he is not crying out in defeat. He is telling everyone that crucifixion is thy kingdom come. Crucifixion is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Crucifixion is the proclamation of the prophets. Crucifixion is the crushing of the serpent's head. Crucifixion is the entrance into the promised land. Crucifixion is the way to peace on earth. Crucifixion is that long-awaited apocalyptic moment. Crucifixion is the subversion of every worldly power. Crucifixion is, amen somebody, the inauguration of the new regime. And crucifixion is the final sacrifice for our sins. It is finished.
But our experience might tell a different story. Because even though the kingdom has come, the kingdom is yet to be consummated. And even though the work of the cross is finished, it's far from being fully realized, right? So for now, we live in this beautiful, difficult, already, not yet tension. But you can rejoice even now. Because even though you suffer, know that suffering is finished. Even though you doubt, know that doubt is finished. Even though you are broken, know that brokenness is finished. Even though, by God, you are still sinning, know that sin is finished. And even though every single one of us in this room is dying, know that death is finished. Our king is Jesus. He crushed the powers and the principalities when he was crushed. He says it is finished, so it is finished. He is the Lord, and he has the last word. Friends, family, we are gathered here today to mourn. Mourn we will not. Welcome to the family reunion, all invited in. The ones who sat and watched, laughed and pointed, called him everything but anointed. Our Father has invited you in. That moment the spirit went out. Today we celebrate a dear friend like no other, closer than my own earthly father, sister, mother, cousin, brother. You have a seat at this table. Bloody hands prepared a feast for you, a dear friend offered as meat for you. There will never be another who did death well. Overpowered hell, dry your eyes over this joyous occasion. What looks like loss is really gain. Remember, sometimes sacrifice is accompanied by pain. When we learn to die, we will surely see our friend again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jenny Bain Wilson was afflicted with a spinal condition that left her in a wheelchair for the entirety of her adult life. And her mobility was, was based primarily on the goodwill of others who she depended on to carry her from place to place. And though the vertebrae in her lower lumbar region were unable to support the weight of her feeble body, she managed to become one of the greatest writers of her generation. She composed hymns, short stories, poems, and it is said that she amassed some 3,000 literary works. But on a particular day with pen and pad in hand, she sat under her favorite shade tree, and as she listened to the waters pass, contemplating her faith in Christ and the transience of this temporal world, she felt inspired and wrote these words. Time is filled with swift transition. Naught of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Though her body was bound to a wheelchair, Jenny looked to God's hands as a source of anchored strength during her affliction. But church, if we transport back some 2,000 years earlier to the hill of Golgotha, our Savior, under the thick canopy of darkness, calls upon those very same hands at the apex of his affliction. He says with a loud voice, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. Now, like the Lord, maybe you found yourself in the midst of some of life's afflictions. Maybe depression has weighed you down and your tear ducts are dried up from all the crying that you've done at night. Maybe the waves of tribulation have tried to snatch you under the undercurrent of their wrath. But I want to tell you this evening that Jesus' suffering on the cross illustrates this one thing. That when, the, when life lays you on the crucifix of confusion... When you find yourself on the altar of anguish and in the deep end of despair, your soul can take solace in the hands of the Holy One. And Luke notes here in this passage 
that Jesus spoke with a loud voice. It's as though Jesus is giving the committal to his own burial. It's significant because he's saying, I'm willing to lay my life down and it's no power on earth that can take it from me. So Jesus speaks loudly to let the immediate audience know and the future reader of the gospel, this very thing, that his life wasn't snatched from him. He surrendered it. His, his life wasn't seized. He, he submitted it. His life wasn't sequestered. Rather, he sacrificed it. And not only did he amplify his voice, but his words were bathed in the language of the Psalms of David. They were the soundtrack of his life. And in the most trying times, in the, in the dying moments, Jesus revisits the words of his archetypal forebearer. He quotes Psalm 131.5. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, in the context, the psalmist is speaking of the Lord redeeming him. But, 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 but Jesus doesn't quote that portion of the passage. Why is that? It's because he's not being redeemed on the cross. It's because he is the one that's doing the redeeming. He's the sacrifice that brought about the salvation. And unlike the psalmist, he, he, calls, the God, he calls God his father. And this is not the technical term. He's using the informal term, daddy. It's a term of endearment. He's saying, daddy, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's almost like Jesus is deciding where his spirit will go before it departs out of his body. And tradition says it like this. It says that it, this is a prayer, Psalm 31.5. It's a prayer that Jewish fathers would teach their son before they go to bed at night. It's sort of like the prayer, uh, the American prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. It's the assurance that when my spirit departs from my body, that I will be reunited with my earthly father. Now, I know if some folks in here, maybe you're here for the first time. And you're trying to figure out what is, why is all of this necessary? Why are we bringing up the cross in such a gory, nasty death? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm going to sit down on this. Recently, the carbon monoxide meter in my house started to go off. I got worried, so I called the police, which I normally wouldn't do in the hood, but I called the police. <laughs> I called the police, and it seemed like as soon as I gave them the readings and hung up the phone, it seemed like they were immediately at my door. So I answered the door. The fire chief was there. I said, man, you really got here very early. He said, sir, do you see all of these EMTs outside ready to administer care? I said, I did. Do you see all of these fire trucks ready to deal with any blaze? Do you see any of the police officers out here ready to administer help? I said, I do. He said, the reason that we have all of these people here is because with readings like the one you were getting, you were in imminent danger and in need of somebody to save you. And church, I'm just here to tell you this evening as I finish up this sermon that you and I were in imminent danger from experiencing the wrath of God. But there was a man from Galilee that incarnated and became Jesus that came and he was the first responder on the field. And he put out the fiery wrath of God with his own blood. I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I want to remind you, it's Good Friday. And my Jesus died. And he died, and he died till justice was satisfied. He died till the earth shook like a drunk man. He died with his heads in the locks of his shoulders. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Oh, let me get And he stayed there all day Friday. Stayed there Saturday morning. Stayed there all Saturday evening. And at this point, death was excited. Death said, I got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've got Aaron, Ishmael, and, jo and Joshua. I've got Abednego, and now I've got Jesus. But while, while he was celebrating, he got a little tap on his shoulder. And he looked back, and he saw a man whose eyes were like a flaming fire. He saw a man whose feet were like fine polished brass. 
he saw a man whose hair was like sheep's wool. And Jesus said to him, listen, death and the grave is only a layover because I'm about to go to heaven and that's my final destination. Because early Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hand. Do you believe it today? I dare you to say, yeah, yeah. I don't got no, that's it. God bless you, church. Amen, amen. How many of you glad he died for you? How many of you know this is not a preacher fest, a competition. This is a celebration of who Jesus Christ is. Did you hear the word of God tonight? Amen. Every head bow, every eye closed. We are honored and thankful for everyone that's here, but we are here to celebrate because something happened to a lot of us. And that thing that happened to a lot of us is <clears throat> these seven words were proclaimed by a brutally beaten and punished God-man. And while he was on the cross talking, he was paying for our sins. And he's paying for our sins because we who are living are not really alive. We're actually dead people walking. The Bible says, on our best day, when we thought we killed it, the Bible says, on our best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Bible says that we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. David said, even when my mother conceived me, at the point of conception, I was filled with sin and evil. But Christ came to override the birth process and to create a new birthing chamber called the cross and the resurrection. And if you place your confidence in what he has done by dying on the cross for your sins and getting up on the third day, you go from spiritually disconnected from God to spiritually connected with God. Is there anyone here tonight that says, I want to go from disconnected to connect it. Slip your hand in the air. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Anybody tonight? Anybody tonight that says, I want to put my confidence in Jesus. Hold your hand up real high in the balcony or on the floor. If you want to put your confidence in Jesus Christ and you got caught here tonight, you got caught in a good situation. You got caught in a rescue chamber because the night is a rescue chamber of the proclamation of God's word to come bring you out of a building and a ship that is sinking. But God through Jesus Christ is able to resurrect the most pandemonium-driven and broken vessel to bring it back up so that it can more than float and it can more than survive, it can thrive. Anyone in here want to put their confidence in Jesus? Anyone want to put their confidence in Jesus? Amen. Well, let our men come. Let us... <laughs> let us...